charge of God's elect. It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns it? It is Christ that died, yea rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God and who make it intercession for us. Amen brethren? Amen. This is a very very beautiful statement here. You can't lay anything to the charge of God's elect, that is those who accept Jesus Christ, those who are walking in Jesus Christ. Because it is God that justifies them. Amen brethren? And you can't condemn them because Christ is actually mediated in their behalf in the sanctuary in heaven. So if Christ is mediated in their behalf in the sanctuary in heaven, who is, who is you to condemn them? Imagine Christ mediated to give them something and you condemning them. How far are you away from the attitude of Christ? How far are you away from the way you should be in contact with Christ? Amen, brethren? Anybody who is doing that, they are far away from Christ. This is why I don't condemn those who are in Christ. What do you say? Let's read on. Yes, but because, but, be, but because the Jews were accusing the Christians here, he had to attack them and tell them that, who are you to condemn us if God justifies us? You understand? Right, you see? And remember, even though Satan is attacking us, he won't personally come and do that. He will do it through people. So verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? If, if yes, say yes. If no, say no. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? A few clothes? Peril? This one? A boyfriend? No. A girlfriend? No. The government? No. As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep to the slaughter. Is that not lovely if that is the way you are? Yes. That's right. It goes on. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that love us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creation, or boy or girl, or money or whatever, or job, shall be able to what? Separate us from the love of God, which is? In Jesus Christ, Amen, brethren. And that ends chapter eight. Wonderful, Amen. Now I'm sure you see the quality of what is written one to seventeen, eighteen to thirty-nine. Okay, brethren. That's the difference, and it was a very beautiful chapter. Now, the lessons you and I have learned here. Listen to me now. The lessons you and I have learned here in this book. Please put it into practice. This is all I can see. I know there are some people that are very young and their hearts are like stone. I know there are some people, they are much, much more younger than me, and they are as if they have been on this earth much more older than me, facing hardship and rejecting the truth. Because when they talk to them, their heart hard like stone. And they set in the way. As the Bible calls it, stiff neck. 
No matter what you can to them. I beg of you, at least pay heed to the lessons you have learned in Romans chapter 8. And if you've begun to get conviction tonight, but you know you didn't absorb it and get it enough, then you have your Bible, and you have your whole of Romans 8, go back and study it for yourself. What do you say? And may God add his blessing to you as you learn on his street. So all I can encourage you is to do like I do. Go through Romans chapter 8. Now, notice I just go through this situation, but if we were to go through this as I have it written on in my Bible, it would be scripture after scripture. We wouldn't even begin to reach about verse 5. Because I have a whole course of scripture references written on in my Whole pile of notes. Personal notes. This simply means I do study for myself. You see what I have? Six books binded together. My hexaplast, six fold. Greek dictionary, archaeological supplement, a book explaining the Greek, the actual Greek text, transliteration of the text, different versions of the Bible, all here in one binding of one book. The book that must, Christ must come in the air and meet me with on this earth. What do you say? Yeah. So I have my Bible for the end. For God's sake. When you open your Bible, ask yourself, is this just a little book when in mashup you get in the next one? Get your Bible for the end. Put your notes and take good care of it. Right? Get a fine point pen and put your notes. You see, look, I have always have a pen here with, my, with me. You see? This spiritual, I have a whole set of studies and I have a U.S. Constitution, a small pocket U.S. Constitution right here ready for war. You see that? Ready for war. Right here. So get, you know, get your stuff. And get ready. Okay, brethren? Study, learn, right? Don't take down your notes and prepare. So let us pray. Loving Father, we thank you very much for all these truths that you have shown us. But help each and every one of us individually to take our Bibles Go back to our Bibles and study our Bibles individually to learn the truth. Bless us in our hearts and help us that we may obey your commandments and follow the lessons that we've learned in Romans chapter 8. Thank you, Father, for blessing us and helping us in these truths. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Okay, just sit for the announcement. Better around the Yeah, you look at Loving Father in heaven, we come before you tonight thanking you for your grace and your mercies towards us. We ask of you for your spirit of truth to enlighten our hearts and to strengthen our understanding that we may know the truth and nothing but the truth and exalt and glorify your holy name. Be with us in a very special way tonight, we ask of you, and help us that as we understand the truth, we shall be able to use it to win people to Jesus Christ and to remove the darkness of error that have destroyed the minds of so many. All these mercies we ask of you, loving Father, thanking you for hearing us and blessing us tonight. Amen.
analysis of the book of Romans. We have now reached chapter 9. So, we're going to be dealing, we are going to be going through chapter 9 and understand in a very large way what chapter 9 is telling us all about. Incidentally, Romans chapter 9 and verse 26 can be considered the chief verse of Romans chapter 9. Listen to this again. Romans chapter 9 and verse 26 can be considered the chief verse. Let's read chapter 9 and verse 26 first of all. Let's read Romans chapter 9 and verse 26. Follow in your Bibles. Romans chapter 9 and verse 26. What does it tell us? It tells us this. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. That's the end of it. What does this verse tell us? It tells us that in a place where it shall be called, you are not my people, instead you shall be called, ye are the children of the living God. The chap chapter 9 is going to show us those who are God's people and those who are not God's people. But it is even going to offer us a philosophy to show those who are not God's people how they became God's people. That is what chapter 9 is going to show us. So as we are reading chapter 9, we are going to see who are God's people, who are not God's people, and those who are not God's people, how they became God's people. This is what chapter 9 is all about. So we start reading from verse 1. We start reading. Verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Ghost. Let's just stop here. Here we see a person's conscience must bear witness, but in the Holy Spirit. This clearly means that you can make a person have a guilty conscience if even self they don't have the truth. In other words, you can make them feel guilty about something that is right. In other words, they can be doing something that is wrong and to do something that is right, if you want to stop them from doing the wrong thing, you can even make them feel guilty so that if they stop doing the wrong, they'll feel as if they have stopped something right. This clearly means that what a person has to do is have an educated conscience. The conscience must be educated by the Holy Spirit. There are some people who have been doing some things and they actually figured that they were wrong to stop it. And they felt guilty about stopping it, but it was right for them to stop it. It simply means that their consciences were educated wrong. So a person's conscience must be educated right. This is why Paul says his conscience also bearing witness. Let's just read the verse all over again. He tells us this. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. Did you see that? So he was convicted that he was right. He knew he was right through the truth. But there was an additional conviction from his conscience 
his conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. In his conscience, he felt good about what he was doing because he was educated by the Holy Spirit. This clearly shows us two things, my dear brethren, that a person can feel guilty about stopping something that is wrong because they think it is right. This clearly means that their conscience needs to be educated. Is that understood, my dear people? There are some people, let me give you an illustration. There are some cases where you have a, a, a father who is very ill and you have a brother and a sister and the sister is, in, is, is married and has her children and the brother is not married He's single and he has plenty of money, but yet he does not want to take care of his little father. So the girl who is married has to take care of her husband, has to take care of the children, and has to take care of the father, while the brother move free and do all what he wants, and so on. And you are Portugal and tell her, but this is wrong. You are not supposed to be breaking up your family life to take care of your father. You're supposed to talk to this brother and get him to do it. And for her to stop doing what she is doing, she feels guilty as if she's doing something wrong. But no, her conscience needs to be what? Educated in the truth. She needs to talk to the person who has the free time and who has the money and get them involved in taking care of him. Is that understood? It is all a matter of how the conscience is educated. So we must just learn that along the way because we have our conscience as an, as an aid in helping us to be convicted about what is right. And what is our conscience? We understand already that our conscience is our reasoning as it is affected by truth or by some kind of rationalism. And it also affects your feelings. So the important point we have to look at here is that our consciences must be directed by the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying here that his conscience also bear him witness in what he is going to say. Now, what is he going to say? Let's see what he's going to say. Let's read it. Verse 2. That I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Did you get that? He is speaking about the literal Jews. In other words, he says, I wish I was accursed of Christ, but for my kinsmen, my brethren, after the flesh. The result. Who are Israelites to whom pertain it the adoption and the glory and the covenant and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. Did you see that, my dear brethren? We are actually being told that all these things pertain to the Jews. It simply means that the Jews were given the oracles of God. The covenants came to the Jews first. And there are a whole host of other important things we must understand that came to the Jews first. And what we are being told Paul is speaking about the Israelites and he says to them pertaining the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, 
and the promises. I want you to observe two things he says here. He says the covenants and the promises. Showing that covenants and promises are not the same. Yet the three angel ministry tells us that covenants are promises. You see? They don't understand that a covenant is the testimony of God. Is that understood, my dear brethren? Right? And that is different to a promise. Right? While in truth and in fact, when God makes a promise to us, he's also going to testify of the truth of that promise. He must not make a mistake and say that the covenant is just promise. Is that understood, my dear brethren? Now let's go on. Verse 5. Whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. So in other words we have been told Christ came to the Jews. Do you remember it? When Christ came in flesh he didn't come among the Chinese nor the Indians nor the Africans nor the Europeans. He came among whom? Among whom? The Jews themselves. Let's read on. Not as though the word of God had taken none effect. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. In other words, what he is saying here, they are not all physical Israel which are of spiritual Israel. Right? So he's going to show the word. It is wrong to say that the word of God has not taken effect. It has taken effect because you still have what? Spiritual what? Israel. Let's read the verse all over again. Read it now. For they are not all physical Israel, which are of spiritual Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham, the physical Israel, are they all what? Children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not what? The children of God, but the children of what? The promise are what? Counted for the seed. Is that understood, my dear brethren? So we are clearly being told, not all physical Israel are of what? Spiritual Israel. There are some physical Israel. But not all physical Israel. And neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all what? Children or children of Abraham. But it is in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now you see my dear brethren, what the evangelicals are telling us today, it is because they are physical Jews that they are children of God. That's what they are telling us. And that the land belongs to them in Palestine there because they are physical Jews. But the Bible is telling us, read it again, not as though the word of God has taken what? None effect. For they are not all what? Israel physical, which are of what? Israel spiritual. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham physical, are they all children of Abraham spiritual. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, the physical Jews, these are not what? The children of God. But the children of the promise are what? Counting for the seed of Abraham. Is that understood, my dear brethren? Here is a clear scripture that clearly tells us that physical Israel are not God's people. That the Jews are not God's people. Right? Is that understood? Especially the last verse which tells us the children of the flesh 
are not the children of God. So Jews are not the people of God because they are children of the what? Flesh. But the children of what? The promise are what? Counted for the seed. And if you have Gentiles who are of the promise too, then they are of the what? The seed of Abraham. Is that understood, my dear brethren? We could now understand the sense of verse 26. Let's look at verse 26 again. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall be called, there shall they be called the what? The children of the what? The living God. Is that understood? So who are who is not God's people? The Gentiles. They were not God's people. But yet they will be called the what? Children of the world, living God, true what? As we go on, we will see. Let's read on. Verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. So he's explaining the word, the word of promise. It says here. For this is the word of promise. At this time shall, will I come and Sarah shall have a son. Why is that the word of promise? Because Sarah was already past the age of having what? Children. And if God says she shall have a son, it is not just because of the natural liveliness of a womb and of her age. She was past the time. It would mean that a miracle will have to be worked to make, to make her what? Bear children. So here we see clearly the physical dis um, disabilities. The fact that God said she was going to have a child it had to be by what? Promise. And one couldn't say well she was in childbearing age so it, it came naturally. No. She had passed childbearing age so if God said she was going to have a child it was clearly by promise. Is that understood? Let's read the verse again. For this is the word of promise. At this time Will I come and Sarah shall have a son? Now, verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children yet, not yet, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works but of him that call it it was said unto her the elder shall serve what the younger so here god is saying look here is evidence of a child of promise rebecca has two children in her womb they have not come out as yet they have not done evil as yet they have not done good as yet it is not of works and yet God is saying the younger, the, the, the elder shall serve one, the younger. It means to say that of the two children, he must select one. Is that understood? He can't choose the two. He must select one as the promised seed. And he selected which one? The younger of the two. And he says the elder shall serve one, the younger. At that time, nobody had done any works as yet. Esau did not do his crime. Jacob didn't do his trickery. Nobody had done any evil or any good as yet. But God is saying, here is an example of promise. I chose the one that came out shortly after um, I am um, Esau. 
In other words, I am saying the elder Esau shall serve which one? The younger. And he says this is a clear evidence of what? Of, of the promise. And isn't it not so now? Of course it eventually became so. Now this was before anybody either did good or evil. Remember both Jacob and Esau did evil. Esau denied the birthright and he was just a lover of meat and hunting and so on. And while Jacob appreciated the birthright because of the spiritual nature of it, he practiced trickery and fraud and lying to get it. Is that understood? So both of them did wrong. So before both of them did, did either wrong or either good, God is saying they are in their mother's womb and I am electing or selecting one. And I am saying the younger, the, the, the younger is going to be controlling the what? The older. Or the older or elder is going to serve the what? The younger. This is what he's saying, right? Now let's read on. Let's read it over again. Verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that call it, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. Do you get it by now? Let's read on. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What does it mean when he say hated here? Does God say hate in the sense of like how we hate people? No, the word hate isn't used in that context. As we read on, we will see the context of the word hate. Let's read on. Let's read back over again. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What does that mean? The context of is of choosing the, the younger, right? And rejecting the what? The older. Let's read on. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Some people might say that because of what you just said here. It says, God forbid. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on, on whom I will have what? Compassion. So then, it is not of him that will it, nor of him that run it, but of God that what? Show it mercy. Now let's just stop here. So nobody comes just so and say, I'm going to serve God by my own shell. I am going to run. I am going to do it and expect God to put his mercy upon me. Select me, Lord, because I have done this. No, 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 it is not so. God must show mercy to the person. Is that not so? And if the person accepts, then and only then could that person be the selected or the elect of God, as you would see in a short while. Yes, sister? Whenever Paul speaks about predestination, he explains predestination in context here in the gospel and choose it. So when he's writing there, he wouldn't have that idea in his mind as the evangelicals or as the um, Presbyterians and others, right? Or the reformed churches, right? How does God know the older will serve the younger? True prophetic insight. Put it this way, he will know the actual, he knows. Yeah, but they, they don't have to be born for him to know that. He select one. And he said, I would want this. I want the younger 
to rule the older. That is why he says, I selected it. Let's read the verse again. Abraham was the one that God called, okay? And after Abraham, God called who? Isaac, his son. But a strange thing happened. Isaac had two. Esau and Jacob, God could only take one as the lineage. Which one would he take? He said, I selected the younger. And said, the older will serve what? The younger. He says, it's not a matter of works. Before either of them do good or evil. Right? He's not saying before one do good and one do evil. Because both did what? Evil. So he's saying before anybody do good or evil, I selected what? One. By saying the younger will serve what? The elder. Generally, I'm sorry, the elder will serve what? The younger. Sorry. The elder will serve the what? Younger. Generally, the younger is supposed to serve what? The elder. But God is simply showing you proof that it is my word of promise. Look, I am turning natural things upside down. I, two children are born. And while it is natural that the younger should serve the elder, I am saying the elder will serve what? The younger. Because I choose that. I select that. Before anybody did anything. It's not understood, my dear brother. It's just a matter of his choice. It comes like this. A woman is about to make a child and you want to put... You want, you, uh, you, a woman is about to make a child and you have a position you want to put one in. You want to put one in a higher position and you want to put one in a lower position. And you just simply say, okay, the one that come out first, I'm going to put that one in the lower position. And the one that come out last, I'm going to put that one in the higher position. You say that before they either do anything to do it. It's just you select one, right, brethren? Now, if you select one, why would you choose back to front two? To show it is your word is the law. Is that understood? To show your word is the word of promise and it works. That is what he wants to do. So it is not to say his word make any do good or evil. Because both of them did evil. But he just selected what? One. Is that understood? That's what he's saying. So the issue is not even that he predestined one to do evil. And he predestined one to do good. He just selected one. But both of them did what? Evil. And he is simply showing us here. Right? Jacob, um, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate. What does that mean? Does it mean he predestined Esau to be lost and to do one set of wickedness and predestined Jacob to be saved and do righteousness? As if none of them have any choice? No. That is not the biblical idea of predestination, so don't even bring that in your mind. It comes like a pagan with that pagan idea. That pagan idea means they believe that God has good and evil in him. And that everything is God. So the everything that is God and have good and evil will predestine apart from your choice one to do good and one to do what? Evil to bridge your polarity. That, that kind of idea of predestination. Don't even take that and try and fit it in the Bible. Don't even try and look at the Bible in that light. That's a very, very strong pagan eyes if you look at the Bible that way. The idea the Bible has of predestination, as, as Ephesians tell us, is who first believe after they have heard, heard the word, the word of truth of the gospel. That's the context of predestination, right? Okay? So let's go back and read now. Verse 14 again, and we're going back down. Let me, read, um, let me go back over this now. It's like he would have gotten it without trickery and all cooking. This is God selected Jacob to have it. 
And the, that is before each of them showed what traits that they had. Right? That is before each showed what traits that they had. You all hear that, right? Okay. Let's go on. Verse 14. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What is Paul trying to tell us? He continues. So then, it is not of him that will it, nor of him that run it, but of God that show it mercy. Let's just stop here. In other words, the issue here is not a question of somebody saying, I will run and do this, I will to do this, and I run to do this if God choose me. Is that understood? Are you hearing me? Yes. It is not a question of one saying, I will to do this, and I run to do this so God choose me. If you do that, you have moved God's hand without, be it, without God himself um, having any intention. It is almost as if you are more righteous than God and you cause God to make a right choice by choosing you. Is that understood? So it is not a question of any individual thinking and running. It is a question of God showing? Of God what? And he shows mercy by giving you the gospel. Amen? What does it mean for all of us here? Which one of you here said, I will think and choose to follow the truth? And then God said, okay, let me bring you, come. Nobody here. Absolutely nobody here. It was God that showed you what? Mercy in the first place. That's why you are here. Is that understood? It clearly shows that it is God first and then man after. Is that understood? Divine initiative and what? That's all he's simply telling us. When you're looking at that, you're, seeing, you're not seeing anything about particular predestination as they teach us, or choiceless predestination, which is what you should really call it, or pantheistic predestination, which is what you should really call it. He is actually telling us here, simply, if anybody is to be in the truth, it is not he must will, and it's not he that must run, it is God will have mercy on whom what? He will have mercy. And then Moses now begins to give us an example. Let's read it. Get on. For the scripture said unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Let's just stop there. When God is saying, I have raised up Pharaoh to show his power into all the earth. Right? And that in him he will be glorified. What does this mean? Does this mean that he caused Pharaoh to be born? To show his power? To show God's power by putting attribution on him? No, he's speaking about raising up Pharaoh to the power. To the, this man to the position of Pharaoh, to the position of ruler of Egypt. Let's read it again. Verse 17. For the scripture said unto Pharaoh, even for this purpose have I raised thee up, 
that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout what? All the earth. In other words, why did God allow Pharaoh to take power in Egypt? Why did he allow him to become Pharaoh in Egypt? And you know, I like what Mrs. White says. Mrs. White says, even before he was Pharaoh, he was a, a murderer already. A terrible killer and a terrible murderer. So why would God allow him to come into power? For the purpose of showing his what? Glory. Is that understood? Is that understood, my dear brethren? The best way to show mercy and Pharaoh at a state like that when he's already rejecting Jew is to put him in the grave. But God doesn't do that. God lets him come into what? Power to show his glory in him. Let's read on. He will even explain more to prove it. Let's read on. Therefore, verse 18, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. it. Thou wilt say unto me, why does, yet, why does he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? No, but O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed, right? Shall the thing formed it say to him that formed, Why hast thou made me thus? Had not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto? This honor, what if God, here is the point now, what if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath filled for what? Fitted to what? Destruction. And that's the point here. Pharaoh was already a vessel, um, Pharaoh before he became Pharaoh was already a vessel of what? of wrath fitted for what? Destruction and God endure his wickedness. So what did God do now? Okay? I'm going to show my glory in you. I'm going to put you in power. Is that understood? And when I'm going to put you in power, I know even though you come in power and I show my glory, you're going to harden your heart. Is that understood? So I show my glory knowing you will harden your heart. So the point about it is not that God formed Pharaoh out of the mother's womb to make him be evil to show his glory. No. Pharaoh was already a vessel of wrath fitted for what? Destruction. And God raised him up into power to show his glory. And this is the context of which Paul is speaking here. When it says the potter had power over the clay, it simply means let me just show you this here now. This is the period before the Pharaoh becomes before, this is the period before the Pharaoh becomes the Pharaoh. This is the period in time when he rejects the Holy Spirit. Lost already. A vessel, a vessel of wrath fitted for destruction. Now God can destroy him then. But God is not going to mold him for his glory. God allows him to come in power here. And during that period, when the ten plagues fall on, on Egypt, he is hardening his hands so he's being molded. Is that understood? To show the glory of God with the wrath and bone falling upon him. Is that understood? The context here, my dear brethren, is not that God set him that way from the beginning, but the man already rejected the truth, and God used the man who rejected the truth within the context of his choice to glorify him, to put him right upon 
to glorify God himself through putting hands upon him. Is that understood? That and that only is the context of that. If you take that out of that context, we're going to find ourselves teaching pantheistic predestination, where the pantheistic God that pervades everything is good and evil, and therefore he predestines some to be good, and he predestines some to be evil without any choice. So some are born doing good, and some are born doing evil. This is the same thing that the Hindus teach. Is that understood, my dear brethren? So we do not believe in this pantheistic predestination or this choiceless predestination. Is that understood? It is not saying anything like that. Yes. yes that is, that's the same thing. If our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God. This is Pharaoh's unrighteousness here also that commends the righteousness of God. His resistance of, the ten, of, of listening to the voice of God causes the glory of God to be seen and known in all the earth. Amen? Up till today, we all know about the ten plagues upon Egypt. Amen? And our God humbled Egypt. Amen? And he showed himself to be a very great God. Isn't it so? So even to the end of the earth, God showed his great glory on a vessel that was fitted for wrath. Is that understood? God endured his wickedness all the time. He was a very desperately wicked man. And yet still God allowed him to come into power for this purpose. Is that understood? Is that understood? Do you all get that clear, my dear brethren? And this is the context of that. Please remember that so that you will not fall to these evangelicals or should I say these reformed and, pres and Presbyterian pantheistic predestination teachings or their choiceless predestination teachings. Is that understood, my dear brethren, right? Do you all get that clear, right? Let's just stop here, right here for a brief while and just quickly, let me just reiterate something here by looking at Ephesians chapter 2. One quickly, we'll go right back here in a while. Okay, Ephesians chapter one. Read from verse three. Right? Verse twelve to verse thirteen. Here is the biblical concept of predestination. From 3 to 13. Ephesians chapter 1, from verses 3 to verse 13. Here is the biblical concept of predestination. Let's read. Reading. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he had chosen us, according as he had chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. So here is where the idea comes now. After he, it says he has predestined all of us, to be saved. But what is the condition? Let's read on. It starts giving us the condition. Verse 9. 
having made known unto us what? The mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he had purposed in himself. That in the administration of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ Jesus. Both which are in heaven and which are on earth even in him. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined or predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will that we should be to the praise of his glory go ahead who first trusted in Christ in whom you also what trusted go ahead after that you have what heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation in whom also after that ye what believe and were what sealed with the word spirit of promise so that is the context you must first hear the gospel you must believe right is that understood that is the context of biblical predestination so god predestined all of us in christ but the condition is we have to experience that we must first what hear the gospel right repent believe and choose to follow right amen brethren after we have done that then we can actually experience what he has set us to experience is that understood it's like this you have a house and you have only beautiful things in the house for your child to experience so if the child goes from room to room in the house they'll only experience beautiful things but the context is they must first choose to go where to the door and open the house is that understood once they walk into that house they will experience the beautiful things you have there they are predestined to experience all those beautiful things but they must first go into the house is that understood so we've all been, been predestined to be saved all of us here but we must fulfill the conditions first of all amen brethren and that is the context of predestination if we don't have that context and read romans in the wrong idea we will end up having an idea that god is very unjust why would we have the idea of God is very unjust? Because we already get the idea of free choice from the gospel. Amen? Amen? So if we already get the idea of free choice from the gospel, how could God predestine some to be lost and some to be saved? Actually cause one to be born and mold them to do wickedness and be lost. And yet this is exactly what the Reformed and Presbyterian churches teach from this scripture in Romans chapter 9. But Romans chapter 9 does not give us that idea. It gives us the idea that When God predestined all of us to be saved, that obviously is according to his will. Amen? It's salvific will. Right? He never predestined anybody to be lost. But it was supposed to be done in Christ Jesus. It's supposed to be fulfilled through Christ Jesus. It's not understood. Right? Through the gospel, through Christ and so on. Right? So that was according to his will. Right? Now, if, you, if, if somebody is doing evil, God did not predestine them to be lost. But the point about it is this. If they reject the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, obviously the only thing they could experience is what? Evil and be lost. But God, that is not his will for them. The only other way we can say it is will is if we look at it as his permissive will. He permits certain things to happen. And this is why it says he endured, right, with much long suffering, a vessel of wrath 
given over to eternal destruction, which was Pharaoh. Right? You can see that it is permissive will here. Right? That it is permissive will. And that is the only other way we can see it's will and evil. It is the permissive will of God. He permitted to happen. Right? That's all. Right? But the, in, the issue we must get away from is ever saying that God choose some people to do good and choose some people to do evil and separate some people to do evil without their choosing and some people to do good without their choosing. So it's a matter of just an automation. The only idea of God that you can teach like that is a pantheistic God. This is exactly what the Muslim says. When a person do good or do evil, they say, Inshallah, meaning as Allah will. So that is the Muslim's idea of God, right? And when we listen to um, our radio program on Sunday, you will be discussing in part the Muslim idea of God on Sunday's radio program, okay? We discuss the Muslim idea of the Trinity, what they think about it and stuff like that, and their idea of God has been pervading all things. We discuss that on the radio program. So you will listen to that, right? Also, we discuss the Catholic idea of the Trinity also, Umuzia, you know, the one substance, you understand, which divided into three. We discuss that also, right? And we watched our idea. And we begin to start showing what is the biblical teaching because the study we are given on Sabbath is the mystery of the Godhead explained, right? And we start off from this week, right? So let's go on, right? Right. Sorry. Beautiful. Even that scripture does away with the way others interpret the one that you pointed to, right, brother? Right, so now, get back to now Romans chapter 9. Remember the issue of Romans chapter 9 here. Let me just get something clear. Do not even have on predestination enough. Because the issue of Romans chapter 9 is not predestination or not. That's not the issue. I just touched that along the way because some people try to interpret it in the light of predestination. It's not understood. The issue of Romans 9 is not predestination. The issue of Romans 9 is those who are not God's people, how can they become God's people? Is that understood? Are you listening to me? The issue of Romans chapter 9 is those who are not God's people, how can they what? Become God's people. We know it is not of he that will it. Or he that what? Work it. But of God who show it, mercy. Is that understood, my dear brethren? That's what we know. And that is what Romans chapter 9 is dealing with. The issue of predestination is not even there. Is that understood? The issue is just simply showing that God shows the, the whole scriptures that we have just read here a short while ago in Romans was to show the word of promise. God is saying, this is proof of my word of promise. I am saying that at this time, Sarah will have a child. Why at this time? Because she's not supposed to be able to have a child. And proof that I say, and know she has a child, that is proof that it is the word of promise that is effective. And then again, Rebecca has two children, and I am saying the, the older shall serve the younger. This is simply to prove the proof, this is simply to prove the power of the word of promise. Is that understood? Is that understood? That is all it is simply to prove. And the rest that Paul is explaining, in case somebody is saying, but God is unjust, look, why he say, um, Esau I hate, and, and, and Jacob I love. Esau I hate simply meaning that I did not choose Esau to be the child of promise. But I chose Jacob. That's all it meant. And he's saying is God unjust? And he's just trying to show God is not unjust. And he's showing God endures 
vessels of wrath fitted for destruction and uses them to exalt his name. Is that understood? That's all he showed. We can get an idea there with Esau. Perhaps, I can now even say perhaps, God foresaw or knew the genetic um, uh, faults that Esau had and knew, knew what it could lead to if he chose wrong. And as a result of that, before any of them do any good or any evil, he chose one of them. Perhaps it could be so. And then perhaps he could have endured Esau as a vessel of what? Rad fitted one for destruction. Because we are told that even though Esau sought repentance with tears, he could not what? Find it, which means he was a man lost already. Is that understood? We understand that. But I'm just simply saying, God is just simply showing the power of the word of what? Promise. And it is not of him that will it, nor is it of him that what? Work it. But of God. Right? That showed mercy. Is that understood, my dear brethren? This is the issue. He's just simply showing the power of the word of promise. Amen, brethren? Is that understood? Right. That's all he showed. That's what it is all about. That and that only. Not about predestination. Let's go back now and read. Right? Let's go back and read um, verse 22. Let's go back and read verse 22 again. Verse 22. Read it. What if God, willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? So we see that he endured Pharaoh was already a person lost already to lift him up and put him in a position of power to show what his wrath was all about. Is that understood? So he used a man who was lost to exalt his glory. Is that understood? To exalt himself. And he molded Pharaoh only in his position of Pharaoh in the sense of the hardening of his heart as we read before. Whose heart he hardened, right? That is the context of it. But it is not saying that God chose Pharaoh from his mother's womb to do evil and predestinated that way that he couldn't make any choice. That's not the context at all. So don't even bring in predestination there, okay? Although these reformed churches try to bring it in there. Now let's go on now. He's continuing. Verse 23. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had before prepared unto us. Glory. So when it says he had before prepared the vessels of mercy unto glory, we understand the context of how he had prepared them before, right? Nobody is set to be lost in Christ Jesus. Amen, brother? We are all set to be saved in Christ Jesus, but you must choose, right? You must first hear the gospel, you must first receive it or believe it, right, brethren? And repent, right? So when it says here that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had before or previously, prepared unto glory, we understand it is in Christ Jesus. Let's go on. He goes on. Even us, right, whom he had called, not of the Jews only, but also of whom? Gentiles. Gentiles. Do you see who are the called ones now? So we cannot just say Jews alone are called ones, but Jews and Gentiles are what? Called. But it is those alone who accept the truth 
that can eventually be called the called out ones. Amen, brethren? Amen, Amen brethren? Yes. Or the church, right? Okay? This is why the assemblies of Yahweh, they call themselves the assemblies of Yahweh. And they refuse to use the word ecclesia, which is church. They rather use the Hebrew word for assembly. That is just a people assembling together for Yahweh. But the Bible is more de definite. It calls the church, the church, the called out ones. Ecclesia, ek, ecclesia, ek, meaning out of. Why does the Bible do that? Because the Bible is specifying a group of people called out of something. You understand that? Called out of sin. But the assemblies of Yahweh just deal with the person assembled. But the Bible deal with the person as what? Called out of sin. So they have even chosen a wrong name. If they had called themselves the Ecclesia of Yahweh, it would have been better. The called out of Yahweh. Is that understood? But they just say the assembled of Yahweh. Right? So the, the call out of Yahweh is more definite, more accurate, and more convictory. Right? It's more able to give conviction than if you just say the what? The assembled of Yahweh. Amen, brethren? So whenever I hear them say assembly of Yahweh, I say, okay, you assemble, God call me out. What do you say? Amen? Amen. Right? And I am told that the radio program, we know the radio program in Trinidad always comes directly after the assembly of Yahweh preaching, right? And I am told in Grenada it comes after the assembly of Yahweh again. Oh boy, something seems to be going on there. But I think that since we are keeping the Sabbath, and we are discussing the scriptures, and they claim to be keeping, keeping the Sabbath and discussing the scriptures. God has still, and using Yahweh too, as we use Yahweh too, God has put both of us close by. Why? Because He wants people to make a judgment between the one, the two, and see which one have the truth more. What do you say? And of course, we do, right? Amen? Amen? Because we do not believe in salvation and rituals. What do you say? And let me tell you something. I, I understand the power of a Muslim being a Muslim. You know, I understand the power of a Muslim being a Muslim. You know, I was looking at a film once and I see them, they bow, bow down and they pray again. And they say the rituals, they bow down and they pray again and they feel good. Rituals mean, if you do this perfect, the way you think God will like it, you please God. And once you figure you please God, you feel satisfied that you're right with God, even though you have all kind of wickedness in your life. Is that understood? Some Muslim have all kind of wickedness in his life. But you just go to the mosque, you pray, you bow down to his face on the ground, and if you fairly humble to Allah, and he comes out feeling as he has done such good acts, the Allah must be pleased. And therefore, actually he has satisfied Yahweh, so he could, um, Allah, so he can go ahead and live in as bad as he wants to live. Is that understood? And do all that. But we're going to be discussing the evil power of ritualism in a future study. There's much more about it. I just refer to it now. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 9. Verse 25. Let's read verse 24 again. Even us whom he had called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, as he had said unto Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not, what? My people and her beloved, which was what? Not beloved. It goes on. And it shall come to pass that in that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, they shall be called what? The children of what? The living God. Amen, brethren? And how that is so? It is not of him that what? Think it or will it, and him that what? Work it, but of God that what? 
showing mercy. Amen, brethren? And this is how come we become what? From the people who, are, who is not beloved of God to the people who are what? Beloved of God. Those who are not his people, we now become what? His people. Is that understood, my dear brethren? That's what Romans chapter 9 is all about. Let's read on. Isaiah also cried, verse 27. Isaiah also cried concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Did you catch that? So though you have Israel, or let's put it today, physical Jews, all over the world, amounting to about 36 million. Is that understood? Let's say in Paul's time, amounting to about 36 million. We are told just what? A remnant out of them was saved. So who make up the rest? The Gentiles. That's right. Amen, brethren? Let's read the next verse. Let's read it all over again. That verse before, let's read it all over again. Isaiah also cried concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will Yahweh make upon what? Amen, brethren? Amen, brethren? Amen. And that is in the last days. Short work will he will make upon the earth. He will finish it quick. Right? Let's go. Why will he finish it quick? Because it's not everybody will be saved. It's only one. A remnant. It goes on. 29. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as what? Sodom and made like unto what? Gomorrah. Right. Now, this, this is very important. What had happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They became so corrupt until they were totally what? Destroyed. And what uh, Paul is saying is that if God had not left a few remnants of the children of Israel, they too would have been totally what? Destroyed as Sodom and Gomorrah. Is that understood? Is that understood? Do you see how bad it is? If you call from here, any religious act, they are gods with God. What do you see? What do you see? Right, let's go on now. Back to scripture. What shall we say then? Let's read verse 29 again. It says here, verse 29. And as Isaiah said before, except Yahweh Sabaoth had left us a seed. We had been a Sodom and made like unto what? Gomorrah, very corrupted and totally destroyed. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, those who were not God's people, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is out of faith. The word of there, the Greek word is ek, out of faith. Right? So to get that righteousness, what? Out of faith, which means faith is like a cup that holds what? Righteousness. It goes on. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, 
had not attained to the law of righteousness. So they were actually trying to do the works of the law, right, brethren? But they didn't attain to it. Why? Because they sought it not by faith, as it were, but by what? The works of the law. Do you see the problem with them? That's why they are all destroyed. It goes on. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whosoever believe, believe it on him shall what? Not be ashamed. So the stumbling stone and rock of offense is Jesus Christ. So God sent Jesus Christ as a stumbling stone. That is why many people stumble over Jesus Christ. But those who believe it on him shall be what? Saved. Amen, brethren? And here ends Romans chapter 9. So what Romans chapter 9 is in effect telling us in verse 26. Let's read verse 26 all over again. The chief verse of Romans chapter 9. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are what? Not my people, the Gentiles. They, there shall they be called what? The children of what? The living God. What do they do? They believe on the stumbling stone and the what? The rock of offense. And that's how they become called the what? The children of God, where they were what? Not the children of God before. Is that understood? And that's what Romans chapter 9 is all about. So you see, learn, learn my dear brethren, in maturity of faith, not to be detracted. Chapter 9 is not dealing with particular predestination. That's not the topic of chapter 9. Anything about predestination there is touched contextually to Paul just explaining the justice of God along the way. A kind of slight, slight diversion. But it is not dealing with predestination. Do not allow yourself to be sidetracked by that. It is simply dealing with those who are not God's people, how they become God's people. Paul answers the question. It is not of him that what? Will it or him that what? Work it, but of God that what? Show it mercy. Is that understood? Amen. That's what it is all about. Plain, simple, and straightforward. And that's what Romans chapter 9 is all about. If you have learned this, and take, and take this which we have discussed here very clearly, take it to heart, then you have learned Romans chapter 9 properly. And you will be able to use Romans chapter 9 to preach the truth to people. And if somebody tries to divert you on particular predestination, using Romans chapter 9, you can get them back on track. What do you say? And don't forget Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to verse 13, which we already quoted. Okay, brethren? Take your time and love and, and learn these things well and study it very well. I could only talk for a few hours here, but you have all the whole hours with you and your Bible. What do you say? And love for the truth? And love for the truth? Well, good. So if you have love for the truth, then you ought to know your scriptures more than anything else. So let us all stand as we have all closing prayer. Next week, God willing, we deal with chapter 10. And Father, we thank you for the light you have given unto us in Romans chapter 9. Bless our hearts with great understanding and help us to abide in the truths of this chapter, to learn it well and to teach it to others. And help us to recognize that the end is coming, Father. Events are slowly moving towards the end. And we are seeing it. Bless our hearts with living faith and prepare us for the end. These mercies we ask of you, dear Lord. Thanking you very much for sharing us and blessing us with these truths. Amen. Amen.
Okay, just sit for the announcements. Loving Father in heaven, this evening we come before you asking you to forgive us of our sins by justifying us, transforming us within. We ask of you for transformative forgiveness. We also ask of you for forgiveness that stops us from actually committing acts of sin. We ask of you also, Father, for forgiveness that blots out all our past sins from our responsibility so that we would truly be saved in the end. As we enter into the Holy Scriptures, please help us to understand the truths that we are studying. Grant unto us a proper understanding of them. Make us to understand doctrine, which is our protection from false religion and from being deceived. So bless us with your Holy Spirit this evening, with understanding for holiness in our life. Safe. These mercies we ask of you, dear Lord, thanking you for hearing us and blessing us. Amen. Romans chapter 10, and going through the book of Romans. So I suppose that uh, by the time we come to the end of the book, most of you would have understood it properly. So that you can use it as a launching pad for your own personal use write commentary, teach others, whatever, right? So now we, we now reach Romans chapter 10, and of course the chief verse is verse 17. Of course you must have known that by now. The chief verse of Romans chapter 10 is verse 17. Now faith coming by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We will reach there eventually, but let us look at chapter 10. How can we describe chapter 10 of Romans? That's the important point. How can we describe chapter 10? Chapter 10 gives us two most important points. If we were to read from verse 1 to verse 11, let me just write it down. We have, if we, if we look at it that way, we will see the part that is basically heavy, heavily theological is verses 1 to 11, and the part that deals with the intransience or the hard-heartedness of Israel is from 12 to 21. So like the first verses explains how Israel should have understood the science of salvation to be. In other words, Israel should have understood the science of salvation to be this. That's what is explained in verses 1 to 11. And since they did not understand, and since they were in gross darkness, then the rebuke to Israel is explained in verses 12 to 21. So in other words, chapter 10 is a, is, a, is a strange kind of chapter. It shows this is what you, Israel, should understand. And because you didn't understand, this is your hard-heartedness that caused such. Something like that. So the, the first portion deals with the kind of science of salvation that Israel should have understood. 
and verses 12 to 21 tells Israel, because they didn't understand, this is the kind of hard-heartedness you have. This is the reason why you are lost. So we're going to look at it along the way, and we'll start from verse 1, obviously, and we're going to be able to see what's the problem of ancient Israel. Let's read. Paul speaking. Of course, it's a continuation of chapter 9, right? Paul speaking. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Did you get that, my dear brethren? This was his heart's desire and this was his prayer for, for Israel that they might be saved. God expects you and I to have that kind of attitude towards all of us. Unless you have deep revenge in you for someone which you're not supposed to have. But your attitude to people is that they should be what? See, this is the, your heart's desire for them. They, could, they, they may be very bad. They may be your parents. They may be your neighbors. They may be friends. Your heart's desire and attitude towards them and prayer for them is that they might be saved. That's the right attitude we all should have, not only to one another, but to people generally. Why? Because the only answer to bad human behavior, the only answer to wicked behavior, the only answer to things they don't like in people is the experience of salvation. Is that understood, my dear brother? So you may, you may see people and there may be justifiable things that you don't like in them. But basically, the only answer to that is salvation. So your heart's desire to them should be that they should be what? Saved. You're not to cherish secret hatred. You're not to cherish secret hatred. Nor are we to cherish any feelings of bitterness in our minds to people. They may have done us terrible wrong. They may have done you terrible wrong things. And it may be very, very painful for you indeed. But if you cherish bitterness in you, you are damaging your character on the basis of the bad that they have done. And remember, any bitterness cherished will grow up and spring up into plants that will have bitter fruits. Amen, brethren? That's why you are not to cherish roots of bitterness for anyone in you. What we are supposed to do, we are, we are supposed to make sure we get rid of all of that. People do wrong for various reasons. Some of them are very hard at it. Some of them are very crooked and unreasonable in their minds. But your heart's desire and attitude to them and prayer should that they should be what? Saved. Is that understood? And you can imagine Paul saying that for Jews. And you know how terrible Jews are in their characters. Anyone who has seen the great light of God, the great grace of God, and reject it, they become the source of all the multitudinous forms of evil that you have upon the face of the earth. And you know this is how the Jews are today. There's a big, big world enough for them to filter out much of the evil traits of their characters into the whole world. And that is why up till today, even though the earth is very evil, it is not yet destroyed. But had they to live among themselves only, the whole earth would have been destroyed already. Is that understood, my dear brethren? You can get them as a root of every evil. You can trace them working in many places. Almost every wrong you can trace their fingerprint as the root cause of it. Clearly as the scriptures say. If you want to call that anti-Semitism, I don't know what that word means. But all I am simply telling you, my dear brethren, 
is this, that even though they are that bad, your heart's desire and heart attitude towards them, your prayer should be that they should be saved. And not them as a special people, Palestinians also, Arabs also, Africans also, Indians also, Chinese also, and Europeans. Is that understood, my dear brethren? This is the attitude we should have. And this is why Paul himself had that attitude. He says he wished that they would be saved. Now let's go on. Verse 2. For I bear them record. Now he's showing here that he understands what is the problem of the Jews. Is that understood? He is showing here that he understands what was the problem that the Jews have. Let's read. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. knowledge. Let's just understand this. A zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Of there is a zeal for God. What kind of zeal is that? It would mean to say that they are seeking to propagate Yahweh, seeking to teach Yahweh, but they are doing it by their own means. They may truly recognize that Baal is false. They may truly recognize that the gods of the Romans were false. They may truly recognize that the gods of the Greeks were immoral and corrupt. But, while they have in their minds that their God was the true God, their way of propagating or pushing that true God, or preaching about that true God was wrong. So they had a zeal to present Yahweh to the Roman Empire, but it was not according to knowledge. In other words, it was not according to the knowledge of the truth. So the knowledge they had of preaching God was a wrong kind of knowledge. It was not a knowledge according to the truth. And Paul explains what kind of knowledge that they had that was wrong. Let's read on. Verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto what? The righteousness of God. Let's just stop here. Here Paul in one brief sentence gives us the basic problem. The Jews were ignorant of what? God's righteousness. Now what is this God's righteousness? The righteousness of God here, which is called God's righteousness, is none other than God himself. His divinity. His divine nature. It, it means that the Jews did not understand the divine nature. They did not understand God himself. Let's just look at... Don't lose this scripture. You can put a marker there. Let's just look at Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 and verse 6. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Yes, yes. Verse 5 and verse 6. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Okay, let's read. Read it. Told the days come 
saith Yahweh that I will raise unto David a righteous branch and the king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called Yahweh our righteousness or the Lord our righteousness. Now if we take that statement serious Yahweh identified as our righteousness. This is not saying that Yahweh possesses in himself our righteousness. It is telling us that Yahweh himself is what? Our righteousness. Is that understood? So the righteousness of God is who? Yahweh himself. And this is what the Jews were ignorant of. Basically, if we were to find out what kind of philosophy they had, we can see that the Jews had a philosophy where they identified the Torah or the law as divine. And they identified this divine Torah as righteousness. So to, to practice this Torah, all they simply did was to just do it. So if they do it, they can share in the divinity of the Torah. That was absolute nonsense. It would mean to say that they did not understand that God himself was our righteousness, which is the divine nature. Our righteousness was the divinity of God himself. And this means to say, my dear brethren, don't you think anytime that you are holy and righteous because you do a lot of good deeds. Think you are holy and righteous if divinity is dwelling where? in you as the source of your good deeds. Is that understood, my dear brethren? When you judge yourself, ask yourself the question, am I abiding in the truths of the plan of salvation? If you are abiding in the truths of the plan of salvation, which means you go shooter in your mind, then you know the divine nature, which are in the faith of Jesus Christ, or in the truths of the plan of salvation, is in you. And if you are accepting those truths, as part of your philosophy or your personal way of thinking, then you're actually accepting the divine nature as your ideal. Is that understood, my dear brethren? Therefore, you can now safely say, Yahweh is what? Your righteousness. Is that understood? And that's where your confidence should lie. Once your confidence lies that way, you will find no disappointment. What do you say, my dear brethren? And Yahweh in you as your righteousness is going to be what you call the philosophical motivation for all the works that you do. So when you do something, you do something to be obedient to the truths that you know. Is that understood? Is that understood? So that the truths of Yahweh becomes the motivating factor in the things that you do. Amen, brethren? All right, so you see, here, when Yahweh is your righteousness, you know how to do works. But the Jews were ignorant of what? God's righteousness. Are we catching that now? Paul is explaining their problem. They were ignorant of God's righteousness. Now let's read on. 
We go back to uh, Romans chapter 10. For they being ignorant of what? God's righteousness and going about to establish what? Their own righteousness. What is that? Their own righteousness that they were seeking to establish. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And the? Yes. Yes. Oh, not to say that Yahweh has righteousness in him to give to us. Yes. Right. In other words, to say Yahweh has righteousness in him to give to us is to give the impression that he has some kind of commodity to give to us that is not part of himself. Right? But he himself is our righteousness. Remember, God is not a shape or form. God is what? One, invisible, divine, spirit, nature, love. Right? Which is what my study is all about on the radio. Finally explained. So that next week I'm dealing with the watchtower's idea of the mighty God. Right? Right. So, so, what we are looking at here, since God is one, invisible, divine spirit nature that is God then to say God has some righteousness in him to give to us is to say the divine nature has some righteousness in himself to give to us but the divine nature is our righteousness that's the important thing in other words the important thing is not God must take something from himself and transmit it to you right you see this is what the Muslims tell us when we tell the Muslims God dwell in us they say they, we ask they ask us how God dwell in you. We say, well, the principles of his divine nature dwell in you. Right? Oh, that dwells in us. That's what we say, the attributes of God. They say, no, 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 no. They say the attributes of God is something God has with he shares with mankind. But it's not God himself. That's what they see. That's what they see. And hence, this is the difference. This is why Muslims can't believe God could dwell in man. In other words, they, 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 they have a nebulous idea of God. And that God is some nebulous something that just have attributes clothed in him then. So we have to think of God as some, let me put it in a, in, in a way they will have it, as some kind of spirit, and the attributes of God is just clothed behind on the spirit that make it look like a man then. You know, kind of invisible man-like, but just because he's wearing a mask and clothes and so on, you're seeing someone, so that if you take the attributes which is the clothes off, you see nothing, that's their idea of God. So God is an invisible something that nobody could understand, but it's just his attributes he communicate. But we are saying it is the invisible God himself that is our what? Righteousness. Is that understood, my dear brother? You get that clear, right? God himself is our righteousness. And this is why it is God himself that's supposed to be in us. Even brethren, the more we understand that, the better it is for us. And here the Bible is clearly telling us that the Jews didn't understand that. So they being ignorant of God's righteousness, let's, they go about to establish their what? Their own righteousness. Let's see what was their own righteousness that they were seeking to establish. Philippians chapter 3, and we look at verse 9. Philippians chapter 3, 
in verse 9. Read it. And be found in him, not having what? My own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is true of faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference here? The, the, when he says, be found in him, having not my own righteousness, which is of the law. He's not saying the law, the Ten Commandments, is my own righteousness. But he says, my own righteousness is of the law. Which simply means his personal attempt to what? Obey the law. That is his own righteousness. You get that clear? His personal attempt to obey the law. Yes. I'm, I'm not here. Yes. Yes. Yeah, actual doing of it. Is what, it, 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 is, it is the same thing what we call magic. The law is divine. Therefore, if I do the law, I become divine. You, you understand that? So the law itself is a divine thing, holy thing. If I just do it, I become holy. It is the same magic. This is the holy thing. Touch the holy thing, I get the holy thing. Same magic. That's the idea they have. So that was the, that was the context of their words. That's why they would elaborate the works in every detail. Say, make sure you do the works proper. You understand? That you can be holy like the Lord. That's why they would do that. So they will tell you, um, you wouldn't drink water. Before you drink every glass of water, take a cloth and throw the water in the cloth and let it strain in that cloth so that it might swallow and nap it kind of a little thing so that might be the water because that is an unclean thing and since that's an unclean beast if you swallow it you become unclean so if you drink clean water you, you know you, you, you wouldn't become unclean that's why they will do that they will detail every single work to do that's how come they will do that but remember Judaism today is far past that Judaism in crisis time Judaism today is worse very very worse it's totally different at that time. Right? So what we are seeing here, take for instance Judaism in crisis time, did not believe that, that God could be manifested in the flesh of a man. But Judaism before Christ's time believed in that, even though it was apostate still. So they keep getting worse and worse and worse as the years go by. Yes, brother? Yes. Oh, God but not according to knowledge. Right, it would mean to say that knowledge was presented to them at a certain point in time. And they did reject that knowledge, the knowledge of the truth, right? But they had their own ideas, right? And it is their own ideas that made them become ignorant to the righteousness of God, or to the knowledge of God. It's like if they didn't want to give up their own ideas. But of course, they were right through. They were right through, of course. Right. But what we are looking at here, right, we are told they have been ignorant of what? God's righteousness and going about to establish their what? Own righteousness, which is of the law. Now their own righteousness is not the Ten Commandments per se. But their attempt to do what? The Ten Commandments. Is that understood my dear brother? That is their own righteousness. Let's see their own righteousness again. 
Roman chapter 9. Look back at Roman chapter 9. 31 and 32. Romans 9, 31 and 32. Let's see their own righteousness again. But Israel which followed after Israel which followed after the law of righteousness. Do you see that? They did what? They followed after what? The law of righteousness. So the Ten Commandments is called the law of righteousness. It's not a bad thing, right? But Israel is, a, is following after it. What does that mean? But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness had not what? Attained what? To the law of righteousness. Do you see that? Wherefore or why? Because they sought it not by faith but as it were what? By the works of the law. Do you see that my dear brethren? So when, it, when, when we are told that Israel right? Followed after their own righteousness. It is simply their own personal attempt to do what? Obey the law of God. Is that understood? Is that understood? Their own personal attempt to keep the law of God, of course, without faith. Right? This is why chapter, chapter 10, verse 17 is the chief verse of Romans 10. Because it's going to tell them how, how the faith they needed came by. That's what it's going to tell them. So, again, verse 3 of Romans chapter 10. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Amen, brethren? Now the next verse tells us how we get the righteousness of God. Isn't that lovely? In other words, Paul is giving them one quick shot, the answer. What does he tell us? Read it. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness.